Welcome to Farmer Talk Radio. This podcast is focused on addressing the workforce issues in clinical trials, strategies for building a successful clinical research team in the care setting. From the 2023 CRACO Clinical Research as a Care Option Conference. For more information on the CRACO Conference, editorial, podcast, or webcasts, visit cracoevent.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. I'm so happy to be here today. Um, I like to start out by number one, telling you I'm not a clinical researcher. In fact, I'm one of the marketing people. We used to say at Duke the M word. Don't say the M word, Susan. Uh, My background is marketing. My background is branding. My background is uh, change management. Um, And I am joined today by my cohort in change, if you will, uh, Michelle Rowe. Um, So thank you so much for inviting us to talk about workforce. Um, I also want to give a shout out to every change agent who is here today because um, I don't really have good news to share. (laughs) So what I'm going to do is talk to you today about the not so good news, but what I want you to hear is the enormous opportunity we have to change things and very specifically, to work together to change things. So when Michelle and I got together to talk about how are we going to talk about the strategies to build a clinical research workforce, I said to her, you talk about the strategies because you're doing it brilliantly at HCA Research Institute, but I'm going to set up the problem, and I'm going to ask everybody to kind of think about today What are you doing to work together in a very specific way to address the workforce crisis? So let's talk about the global clinical research workforce crisis and um, emphasis on global, emphasis on crisis. We have moved from individual companies thinking, how do we recruit? How do we recruit? How do we get staffing? To actually a global crisis. We do a lot of work with the European CRO Federation, and they said the other day on a call, we're desperate. They used the word. We are absolutely desperate. So we talk a lot about transformation of clinical research. Um, And in fact, Dr. Califf had this piece recently in a publication about clinical research being the evidence generation engine. So Denise and I got together last fall, um, and I think we're we're passionate, partners in passion, I think, for clinical research. And we we said, you know, you're you're not going to have an evidence generation system. You're not going to have, and I believe this, transformation of clinical research if you don't have the workforce to do the work. So we're going to be coming out with a piece following Dr. Califf's call for an evidence generation system, and that's called Now is the Time to Fix the Clinical Research Workforce Crisis. So look for that. (laughs) So you can't have this transformation without workforce. And do you know who knows that? The FDA. So the FDA sits on our consortium and the FDA opened our Global Clinical Research Workforce Global Roundtable in January. And their message was, 
researcher, the staff is the beating heart of the industry. And they also said we can't have high quality and adequate protection for participants without adequately staffed, properly trained, knowledgeable, and experienced workforce. So we talked yesterday a little bit about the FDA and how they are partners in transforming clinical research. And knowing Dr. Califf, I know that that is true. The one thing I learned from Dr. Califf <clears throat> was 100% to address what he calls log jam issues, issues that are preventing change from going forward. And workforce development is one of those. So here's the not so good news. Um, we have unprecedented staff turnover in our industry. I think everybody in this room has probably felt that, whether it's through people retiring, whether it's through people making decisions to exit the workforce through COVID. We, we don't have a pipeline of people. Um, and I want to share with you some stats that Tegan Mead wrote about recently in a piece. She's with Javara. I actually sent Jennifer a note about this. In April of 23, last month, there were 24,000 studies being actively recruited for. Those studies need 18 million participants, and they need 183,000 PIs. Now, I like to say behind every PI is a study team. And I know that PIs report that they only spend, they spend less than 10% of their time on studies. So if we need 183 PI, 3,000 PIs, imagine how many CRCs, CRAs, project managers, data managers, regulatory managers that we need to actually make these studies move forward. We know that we have a major shortfall in applicants. We know that studies are being delayed, specifically oncology studies, because the lack of staff. And we know that there's a lack of diversity in the staff that we have. So in fall of 21, if you don't know about this study, please Google it. Tufts came out with a study that showed a direct correlation between the clinical research staff and clinical research participants. I also like to say that the protocol is not the only path to diversity. So we have Fedora, we have diversity action plans that we're now all wondering how we're going to implement at the site level, right? But we also have another path to improving diversity in clinical research, and that is through hiring a diverse staff. So two action items for you today. First, if you haven't had implicit bias training, or if your organization hasn't given you implicit bias training, leave today and write an email to your supervisor or your manager and say, where are we on implicit bias? It's absolutely critical to have that training. And in fact, tomorrow at ACRP, we're a small but mighty staff of 21 people the entire staff will be trained in implicit bias. The second question is, ask yourself, what is our plan to hire diversity into our staff? Do we have SOPs? Do we actually talk about it? How do we, at a very local level, improve the diversity of our staff? Here's why. 
This is an amazing study, but if you read through it, only 22% of those who responded on this global survey thought that diversity in the staff was important. We have a lot of education to do to connect the diversity of who's conducting the trials with the diversity of who's participating in those trials. Okay, to continue my bad news story, it's only going to get worse. <laughs> so we know that there are an inordinate amount of trials. I'm so thankful for that. I'm always thankful to hear about the number of clinical trials being conducted. Protocols are getting more complex. And then we have this really cool thing called decentralized trials. So admittedly, I am old enough to have written the first editorial at Quintiles on risk-based monitoring. Imagine, risk-based monitoring, what a concept, right? I'm also old enough to remember pragmatic clinical trials, when pragmatical clinical trials were all the rage, right? And I am so thankful that technology, having a background in actually telecommunications and technology, I am so thankful that technology has caught up with the healthcare system to actually allow us to do decentralized components in clinical research. But that is going to change the type of skills we need and the type of training we need for the clinical research workforce. So we like to say, Denise and I, that we are in a perfect storm. But here's the good news. I told you to think positively. Here's the good news. Crises get people to take action. We know that through COVID, right? And yesterday our keynote speaker said the one mistake we made was not to communicate that clinical research had been working on the mechanism to deliver that vaccine for years. We have a really unique opportunity to come off and be a part of the COVID pandemic to actually make some changes and to get build more awareness. So you may not know this, but our profession is not recognized as a profession at the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. And as Jen Scheller said to me the first time I met her, Jen is with Merck, the first time I met her, she said, Susan, this isn't a job. This is a profession. And yet, we're not recognized as a profession. And I will stand here before you as the head of ACRP, in large part thanks to Jennifer Byrne, who hired me, we don't we don't act like we're a profession. We have a lot of work to do to stand up. Think about the nursing profession. We have a lot of work to do to, as Denise said, stop saying I fell into it and start saying I chose to be a clinical researcher. There are no standard pathways into the clinical research profession, zero. We don't talk about it in high school. We don't talk about it in med school. We don't talk about it in nursing school, and there is no STEM program for clinical research. And how many people do you know who say, I want to be a doctor, or I want to be a nurse, or I want to be in healthcare? And we do not respond by saying, have you heard about clinical research? We have a lot of work to do. We don't give a lot of recognition. How many of you participated in Clinical Trials Day on Saturday? It's an amazing day to be able to thank Thank the profession. Hug your clinical researcher today. Remuneration. Denise points out and loves to point out that the funding through government studies for funding the staff who are conducting studies hasn't increased in years, in years, right? So the NIH, by the way, NCATS, 
they need to do a better job of recognizing what is it going to take to fund the staff that do their trials. And then finally, there are a lot of barriers to recruitment, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit about how we hire in clinical research. Here's the good news. Here is the good news. We've done a lot of work on our profession. We've put down on paper what it takes to be a clinical research profession. We have established, how many of you know about the J JTF um, clinical research competencies? Okay, we've done a lot of research in, in an industry where our profession is not recognized as a profession. We don't have global standards. In a highly regulated industry, you have to have a license to cut hair. You have to have a license to drive a bus. You have to have a license to be an auction caller. Hey, but, 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 you have to have a license, okay? You don't have to have a license to be a clinical researcher. But we have established the platform, the scaffolding, the standards already for those who want to enter our profession and who enter our profession. This is the Joint Task Force on Clinical Research coming out of the Multi-Regional Clinical Trial Consortium at Harvard. And Denise was a part of this, ACRP's Beth Harper was a part of this, Stephen Sonstein was a part of this. Many people got together and said, if you're going to come into this industry, you need to know what you need to know in order to put, as one person at Quintas used to say, poison into people. So we asked ourselves, okay, where do we go next? Where do we start? We have this amazing platform of competencies, but how do we get started? So ACRP has, represents 14,000 clinical research professionals. We have the largest social media network in our space, and we have an additional 80,000 people plus who opt in to receive our information. So we went out and asked them, where do we start? You can see their responses here. Could you address the salary issue? Could you raise awareness for the industry, right? Could you talk to us about how we enter the profession? And so we got together a few years ago and created a consortium called Partners Advancing the Clinical Research Workforce. And this is the great news, is we're actually working together to address the global clinical research workforce crisis. Now, Here's the opportunity. There aren't enough logo on, logos on this page, right? So we have people coming to the table. We have people discussing it. Amazing partners to address this. And we created a mission, and that mission was to ensure a diverse, research-ready, and sustainable clinical research workforce. Why? To, in order to improve global human health. Denise just said it right? Clinical research is, improves clinical care. So we asked ourselves, what are the barriers? We started with, what's the problem? And here's what we went into the room talking about. Nobody knows about clinical research as a profession. That's what we went into the room talking about. But let me tell you a story. Charlene Trainer with Durham Tech graduates 100 clinical research students a year, either with an AA degree or a certificate. They go on to complete a 17-week internship program, and they can't get jobs. 
because they don't have a four-year degree. And while that's not the case at every institution, for example, at the Duke Office of Clinical Research, they hire people without four-year four degrees. But we went into room thinking, we need to create an identity for clinical research. Yes, we also have to break down the barriers to entering the profession. So we came out with four issues that we wanted to address. And then, a few months later, we got in a room and said, What's the vision for the future? So it's really important when you go and you define the problems that you also define the solutions. Where do we want to be? And we did that. Increased awareness of the profession, greater collaborations across the industry, a globally recognized standard of competency that everybody shares as a baseline for entering the clinical research profession, and then create pathways, create pipelines for people to be able to come into this profession. Some people tell us we should start in kindergarten, start talking about clinical research at, you know, mother and father or partner career day um, in kindergarten. So the consortium has identified, this is a year's worth of work, the consortium has identified three, three priorities. And I wanted to share these in advance of Michelle coming and talking about her strategies for building the clinical research workforce at HCARI. So first and foremost, to build an identity. Now, let's be honest, you're talking to someone who has 35 plus years of marketing experience. <laughs> If you want me to build an identity, absolutely. I like to say any problem that you can throw money at is not a problem. And this proposition right here is money. I like to say, give me $5 million in five years and we will build an identity the likes of the Nursing Association. It is doable and quite frankly, it is easy to build an identity. First and foremost, starting with how clinical researchers think about themselves and their profession. We have to start with the people in the industry. Second, opening doors to a new career. Access, access to people who want to join our profession. ACRP has a really cool thing called the Ride for DEI. We're in our third year. The first year, three of our volunteers ride 335 miles from Pittsburgh down to Washington, D.C. to raise money for scholarships. The first year we raised 23000 The second year we raised 63000 And last week we raised $76,000. Every penny of that money goes to scholarships to our conference. Every penny of it. For people of color to get access to enter this profession. Whether that means training, whether that means networking, whether that means resume development, or whether that means mentoring you get access to be able to join the profession. So the third and final one is change how we hire. And then I'll hand it to Michelle. But what I wanted to leave you with was this idea of, you know, I was thinking about this last night. If we're going to change how we hire, we have to think about the way we think about hiring. And right now that's really, when I say building an identity is easy, Changing the mindset of our very linear industry, sponsor to CRO to site to professional, on how we hire, who we hire, 
what the criteria is for hiring, the mindset is really different because sponsors want experienced people on their trials. It is a risk-based proposition. So we have to have people, for example, like Merck, Kelly and I are going to be up here with Darius talking later today, who are committed to early talent development, who are committed to looking at skill set versus level or years of experience. And so that's the final thing I leave you with today, which is to ask yourself, how am I working to develop early talent? When I see your resume, am I looking at the number of years of experience or am I looking at the skill set behind the experience? And so we are striving. We are on a mission, I like to say. We are striving to put in place a mindset change in the industry for who comes in to the industry. And so with that, I'm going to hand it to Michelle, and she's going to talk about how she's developing these strategies at HCA. Thank you so much, Susan, and um, thank you for the opportunity today. My name is Michelle Rowe, Vice President of Operations at HCA Healthcare. And before I get started and, and build off of what Susan has just presented, I wanted to ask how many of you in the audience today represent a care setting? Raise those hands high. Be proud. Okay, wonderful. Well, my disclaimer today is that HCA Healthcare, our research institute, is on this journey. We haven't figured it all out, but we are putting the pieces together, and I want to come here today to share with you those pieces, what we're learning, and so that we can learn from each other. Denise mentioned a transformation, and I think it's a transformation and a collaboration together. Now, Susan just spoke of the global workforce issues and the elements in the storm that's culminating. How many of you can relate to one or more of these issues when you think about your, your, your role, your job, your organization today, no matter where you work, whether it's in a healthcare setting or not? How many can, okay, a lot of hands up, look around. So as I, I think through um, how I wanted to set up the conversation today and share some best practices and what we're doing along this journey, I first wanted to ensure that you understood who HCA was to kind of help relate to what we're doing. Um, when HCA does something, we, we have to do it big. We are the largest for-profit health system in the country with 280,000 colleagues, 2,000 sites of care, 21 states, and including the United Kingdom, we have 37 million patient encounters annually. And so with that, when we think about a change, we do it large, and we can't think small. And so the Research Institute, 36 sites, 150 colleagues across the country. We describe ourselves as a multi-specialty research arm of HCA Healthcare. Um, we want to make research easier, but as you can see, as you think about one site or 36 sites across 180 hospitals, we have to think about our change. So where do I come in? As Susan had shared, she doesn't have a, a research background. She's not a research professional. I'm the person who runs into a burning building. I remember two years ago when it was the middle of a pandemic, and we needed to stand up operations for research infrastructure across our organization. Um, that sounded exciting to me. 
And so I ran into that building because I wanted to ensure that we could do these meaningful trials, that we can look at our data and we can make a change. And so that's why I'm standing up here today. I'm passionate ab about research. I'm passionate about our colleagues. Um, and, and the field is making a big difference in healthcare delivery and quality outcomes. So how do we look at this at HCA Healthcare? And a few things I'll mention is we, we take a look at it not just um, internally, but externally. But I want to talk about those internal aspects first. Just like research and this crisis, this storm that's culminating, there are other areas in a healthcare setting that are also in crisis. When I think about, um, I'm going to land, uh, fly back today, and I'm going to go straight into a meeting that's around workforce tech task force. So already at HCA Healthcare, this is an issue that we're bringing together different groups, GME, nursing, physicians, right? All the different aspects of a healthcare setting, they're also experiencing some of these issues. And why do I bring this up today? Because we can't do it alone. I can't be in a silo in a health system that large and try and tackle these problems alone. So when I'm thinking about those important factors around hiring and DEI and the quality agenda and GME and nursing and physician recruitment, all of those things are important and they're important to the health system. So I'm partnering together. So I would challenge you as you're thinking about some of the crisis and, and those issues that you're um, experiencing today within your organization, look around and think about the other partners who you need to be working with who can help you. And so this is a part of our, you know, looking internally at how we're looking at the issue of this, this crisis. The second part of this is we need to adapt to advance. Um, one of the new things that I learned in this role in the last few years is human resources is really good at hiring nurses. They're out there, right? We're changing the world. We need nurses. I'm a nurse, right? We need nurses out there. But we need to help our HR departments, our training and education departments, our finance teams, our marketing and communications. We need to help them understand research and why it's unique. And then it takes a different skill set. So we've been really taking a step back to partner. And how are we going to tackle these issues? Again, is by looking at our job descriptions, looking at experiences, training our HR team on how we recruit and how we retain top talent here. And so, again, it's not just looking at the big issue. It's looking at the small pieces of the puzzle that we're putting together to try and solve these issues. Training and education. We do a great job of training people within the healthcare setting, right? HIPAA, uh, safety measures. But how are we training specifically to research? How are we specifically making sure that patients have access to this? And so, again, we're partnering, we're sitting down, and we're thinking about all the different parties within our healthcare setting that contribute to a, a journey forward and the steps that we need to take. So lastly, when I think about how we're tackling this, we need to look externally. You know, I have really enjoyed uh, conferences like this, partnerships like with many of you in the room today, but we can't do this alone. Even though we have multiple sites across the country, we, you know, we're looking internally and trying looking at our processes and, and building that infrastructure, we need to partner together. So we need to leverage the relationships and the work with ACRP with city, 
with our technology partners, with government, industry, healthcare partners as well. We are trying to solve a bigger problem that, than any of us can solve alone. And so I think it's today is a great example of bringing those best practices forward, working together to say how, and I remember at the ACIRP conference recently, we were talking with our colleagues to say, how are you tackling some of these obstacles with HR? How are you bringing them forward? How are you starting the conversation? What has worked for you? So we don't have to start from scratch. And as Susan just alluded to, we got to raise and elevate the, um, the visibility of the profession itself. And by doing that, we can help others at the table understand it as well. And I truly believe that that is going to get us to the next step um, to really make a movement in a forward motion um, on our transformation and our collaboration forward as we think about our workforce and that crisis and the different issues that we're really uh, against today. So with that, I want to thank you again for the opportunity. This is really important to our organization, and um, I hope all of you, um, we can work together and partner as we think about the solutions. Thank you. All right, um, uh, Susan, um, that was one of the best presentations I've ever heard at any conference from anybody. So thank you very much for that. My bad news, my bad news presentation. Yeah, you're good at that. Yeah. Wow, what a compliment. Yeah. Yeah. So um, with respect to workforce diversity um, generating effects with um, patient diversity, is there any data on whether that actually, that actually proves that happens? And if so, is it the study coordinators or just people in general? that make the difference, or the, or the investigator makes the difference? Oh, I'm so biased. Um, let's just say it's the study coordinator that makes the difference. So um, you first have to start, sorry, I, I love PIs. You guys, I worked at Duke. How can I not love PIs, right? The Duke Clinical Research Institute. I, You can't throw a stone without hitting a PI, right? Um, but I really saw how critical and that's not even the right word, CRCs and study coordinators are to moving the study forward, to, to moving that protocol, and also to saying to the diversity aspect, and I'll say it this way because I'm not a researcher, you're never going to be able to recruit for this study, okay? Those are the conversations that we would have inside the room with the study team, Right, so I would say the study coordinator, the project manager, the lead on the study has significant influence and power to change the way, or how about this, to transform clinical research. And PIs will follow. That's really the completely ironic thing about it, that the PI will follow. Hey, Susan, um, great presentation. I guess my question is, um, well, comment and question. So I totally agree, the workforce pipeline, we need to figure out a way to, to fix it because we, we have a shortage of personnel in order to do the work we need to do. And at the same time, you know, when we're trying to talk, when we're talking about diversity, it's really hard to figure out how to reach those, you know, those kids because right now I get students all the time for internships, and most of the time they come from the top schools. No one goes to the high schools on the other side 
you know, a, a town or anything like that. What kind of models are out there that demonstrate how to build these pipelines and actually bring students in in order for us to train them? Because we need to have better training. Um, so that's one question. The second question is something you mentioned too was that, you know, we do have people who have been trained, but yet they say they knock on doors and nobody would give them a job. How do we fix that? Because personally, I have friends I've sent to places, you know, and kids, and they can't get jobs even though they've been to classes and training. And so how do we fix that too? Okay, so models. Here's the good news. There are a handful, and I, by 10, let's just say 10, a handful of models that are out there that are really diverse and they're working. We have to figure out which one works the best, how to accelerate it, and how to scale it. You're going to hear later today about one model from Merck that we're working with, um, absolutely working. There's a model at UC Davis where they're going into community colleges and they're now going into high schools. There's a model MCA Foundation is actually in El Paso, Texas, focused on the Latinx community. Um, bringing in people to train them for clinical research. Their numbers, they now have 80 job openings um, in their area. Um, critically, it's an economic de development proposition for El Paso. It is not a clinical research workforce proposition. It is a community economic. They have 80 roles in El Paso for clinical research right now they can't fill. So someone needs to pay the way for people to move. Um, there's a model at Jefferson Health in Philly where they're tapping into <laughs> nurses who are burnt out at the bench side. Um, they're going into departments within their healthcare system and they're asking their healthcare system to sponsor clinical researchers. Um, Merck has an amazing model for early talent development, which we'll hear about. <clears throat> So the, there are models out there that are working. Um, it dovetails into your other question, which is the pathway, right? So you can be interested and you can do the training, but you're not going to get hired unless you can demonstrate, I have experience, okay? And that is the number one brick wall. And so it's up to us, actually, all of us, um, and even Michelle, like this is a massive healthcare system, asking the question, what is experience? What is it? Does it mean I was on a trial or study? Or does it mean I'm like an Uber project manager who can, pro it doesn't matter what the topic is, I can project manage anything within the training for regulation, right? And you're one to speak about that because we met yesterday. So for those of you who don't know, remind me of your name. Anita. Anita project manages one of the largest data networks established as a result of COVID where organizations came together and decided to share their data, anonymized obviously, to share their data to study COVID. Now, I've worked on huge networks at Duke, right? Tick and Tin, Trial Innovation Center, Trial Innovation Network, ECHO, which is the child health. On a daily basis, Anita manages this network of data across multiple organizations. So this type of your experience and your skill set to be able to do that, you didn't necessarily say, I have to have clinical research experience. You have to be able to manage multiple partners coming together and manage a database that's, that's being shared by many. 
Okay, so we have to look at, we have to define, and it hasn't been done, what is experience? Okay? I heard the ding, just so you know. We heard the ding. <laughs> okay? I'll yeah? I'll, I'll try to make this quick. Uh, what about the, there's a missing piece to this puzzle, it seems to me, which is what level of skill is needed at points of care, and I mean small points of care, uh, where you're not talking about training clinical research nurses or staff, at least in the usual sense, for a site. But if, if the movement here is toward points of care, and I mean community health centers and primary care clinics and so on, what level of skill is needed at those levels for the kind of work that they're going to be called upon to do? Yeah, I think you um, are bringing or shining a light on an issue that, that is a reality. As we think about going into those care settings, um, this is not something that's typical in that workflow, right? And so I think there is an additional level of understanding and education we need to bring forth. And I think that's up to us as the professionals, right, to, to really come forward and say, we want to help get to this place where we're in a better situation to enroll patients in diverse locations and really look at those issues with DEI. And to do that, we have to bring forward those sites and, and our, our skills that we're training with those colleagues and really come up with a program that's going to meet the needs for that, that trial, right, for that study, but also for our patients, and, and that's what it needs to remain at the center is the safety of our patients. So I think a great question you bring up, I, I think we're all still working. <laughs> Sorry, Susan. We're all still working towards that solution, right, and what that <laughs> needs to look like as we evolve. And I'll just give you a quick anecdotal story. Um, many people, there are entry level, right, people who come into this with no experience, and then there are lateral movers, okay? Lateral movers are critical, so nurses coming over, et cetera. However, I took a little poll um, at a chapter um, about a year ago. How many people would prefer that a nurse come over and join the clinical research, right? Literally every hand went up, every hand. They will automatically take a $30,000 cut in pay. No one's coming over, okay? <laughs> no one's coming over unless you're going to retire and you don't need the money. It is a very large issue, okay? Do we have time for one more? Are we done? Okay. Oh, shoot. I'll talk to you after. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Craco Conference, editorial, podcast, or webcast, visit cracoevent.com. Thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.